Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Starting in 2024, you have 90 days to provide all this information to the government, 90 days from the time you file your LLC or your entity. If you've got one from the past, this year, last year, 20 years ago, you have a year. So you have until the end of next year to get it all done. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best ever listeners, welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm your host, Joe Cornwell, and today I am with Mauricio Ruled. Hopefully I pronounced that right. Mauricio, how are you? I'm doing great, Joe. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to this. Awesome. I appreciate the time. And so Mauricio, for anyone who may not know him, is an SEC attorney. He focuses on real estate syndications and other real estate law. He's a limited partner in syndication deals. And from my knowledge, he is the expert that I follow on the Drunk Real Estate Podcast when it comes to real estate law. What else did I miss there? That's it. My job is to keep syndicators out of jail. That's kind of like how I like to frame it just making sure they're fully complying with all the federal and, and state stuff. And then there's drunk real estate where I get a lot of people getting some new insights over there as well. <laughs> yes, definitely. I'm enjoying the show and we appreciate your time here on our show. So let's start with your background and it's your first time on the show. So tell me a little bit about your background and then how you got into real estate law and then we'll go from there. I'm a lawyer, right? Don't hold that against me. So when I graduated from law school, I did what most lawyers dream of, which is I went to work for a law firm, a really great law firm did a lot of securities, but I did the litigation side. So I was defending lawsuits, doing motions, depositions, court appearances, appellate work. It was kind of fun to do that side from a defense. So I represented the American Expresses, JP Morgan's, Merrill Lynch's of the world. And then where my life really took a huge pivot was just pure luck, I think. But I was flying back from Miami one time from a birthday party and was looking for something to read. And even back then, I wasn't an avid reader, but it's a five-hour flight. I got to read something found Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which I'm sure a lot of your audience knows about the little purple book. That kind of just blew my mind, just changed my entire world, to be honest with you. And I got so lucky because literally two weeks after I read that book, after it changed my world like your audience did, I was driving down the streets of LA and I heard a drop-in from Robert Kiyosaki promoting the real estate guys. And that's really how I got into the real estate side is I found the real estate guys, went to their event, 
long story short, ended up leaving my law firm, went to work and become general counsel for that company, Real Estate Guys. They have a, a huge development company buying a lot of real estate. And then they were syndicating a lot back in the day. So that's really where I cut my teeth on the syndication piece. And I'm talking old school, right? I'm talking- Yeah, what year was this? This is 2005, okay. almost 20 years ago, right? So there is no Instagram or, or Facebook or social media. And there was no 506C, right? It was only 506B. So we would have live events. We'd draw 60, 80 people into a room. Guys would wear a suit and tie. And it would be like a pitch fest in the room physically. And I'm there with the PPMs printed out. People are writing checks. It was really old school, but that's really where I cut my teeth. And then long story short, it, that kind of evolved into me helping some of the realistic members, helping them with LLC formations and sort of stuff on the side that grew into its own little side business, ultimately starting my own firm in 2006, 2007, Premier Law Group, ultimately left the guys, kept them as my VIP clients, but then started my own firm back in, like I said, 06, 07. And at the beginning, you do whatever puts food on the table. I was doing a bunch of stuff, narrowed it down to syndications and asset protection. So I got a really deep background in asset protection, was doing a lot of work back then on entity creations, putting together structures to maximize protection. At some point it hit me, I'm spending two thirds of my time on asset protection, but it's only generating a third of my revenue and vice versa. So I just went all in on syndications back when my daughter was born. So she just turned seven. So seven years ago, and I just got super lucky seven years ago, it's kind of when the boom happened. When I started that, I think 506C had just got implemented. And so that just started that sort of a syndication boom, honestly, that just took off until COVID. We took a break during COVID. I thought, oh my goodness, this is it. This is the top. And then it just kind of took a little dip and then just kept riding until probably middle of last year is when everything kind of stopped, froze, obviously with all the interest rates going up the way they did. There's just not a lot of transaction volume. Transaction volume now has collapsed about 60% from a year ago. That's where we are today. Today, Premier Law Group, we were about 12 or 13 in the group. And we only do right now real estate syndications. That's our entire practice. We're bringing on a transactional attorney now. So we're going to be able to do some of that stuff. And then my vision for 24, 25 is just like anything that a syndicator needs, whether it's state planning, asset protection, transactional securities, whatever it is that they need from the legal side, we'll be able to provide that. But that's kind of where I am now and had no intention or didn't even know what the syndication was when I left law school. But now I'm considered one of the foremost experts and I've been just because I've been doing it now for gosh, 25 years now. That's an awesome background. So let me start with where are you guys based now, your firm? We're virtual. So okay. my office, I'm sitting here in, in Southern California, right on the border between Orange County and San Diego. I can probably walk the San Diego line from here, San Clemente, California. My partner, Bethany, she lives up in Irvine. So she's up the street, but then everyone else are attorneys around Michigan and Boston paralegals are all over the place. I mean, I've, I've lost track of where everybody is, but we're all over the place. We're virtual. This is technically the only office that we have. And I really got it because I needed a studio to record content because <laughs> everybody else has a home office. So we're all over the place. And because securities is federal law, we get to practice anywhere. So we're not limited to practicing California. In fact, our clients are all over the country, a few Californians, but not a ton. And then we do have international clients because as long as you're raising money in the United States with U.S. investors, it doesn't matter that you live in Canada or you live somewhere else or that your project is somewhere else. If you're raising capital in the United States, you've got to comply with the U.S. securities law. So we can do it everywhere, but I'm physically sitting here in San Clemente. Beautiful day today, except it's a little chilly. It's, I think, 65 degrees or something. It's a little cold. Oh, yeah. It's like 30. So I feel really <laughs> bad for you over there. So my next question was, you can practice in all 50 states. So 
Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Federal law, yeah. right? And, and I should have said, we have a lot of California clients. What we don't have is too many clients doing projects in California. There's a couple down in San Diego, but it's really tough to make the numbers work here in California, as you probably can imagine. The price to rent ratio is just not super favorable. So we tend to not see too many California projects. Our projects are where you would imagine they'd be in Texas and Florida. And that's really the two ones where I would say probably half of our deal are either in Texas or Florida or Colorado or in those kind of states. Okay. So obviously this is a very broad subject and I am the furthest most from an expert on this. So feel free to explain things to me like I'm a five-year-old, but I do want to talk a little bit high level of, give me a few reasons why the people who are raising money should be speaking with an attorney such as yourself and we'll branch off from there because I'm sure it'll lead into some follow-up. This is a great question because I get this a lot, especially if you've never worked with one, but why is the SEC even involved? That's a question that makes sense because you're buying real estate, right? You're getting a couple of your buddies together and you're going to go buy a piece of property like securities. I'm not trading securities. Why do I need a securities and exchange attorney? And the reason is because the definition of a security per the SEC is extremely broad. So the structure of a deal doesn't really matter. It really just depends. Are you raising money from investors where the returns are generated by your efforts. If you're out there in the community raising capital and you're doing the work so that the returns of the project are generated by your efforts, everybody else is just giving you money and staying home and you're doing all the work or you and your partners are doing all the work, that is a security. And you must comply fully with not only federal securities laws, but also state securities laws. And that's why you need somebody like me or a securities attorney to help you do that. This is honestly one of these areas that it's not a do it yourself. There's just no way you can do this on your own. It's almost like saying, well, I need to go in for surgery, but I'm not going to use a doctor. I'm just going to do it myself. Or I'm going to have my mom do it because like, whatever. It's like you, you have to have a security. Attorney. Even if you create an LLC, do you need an attorney to create it? Maybe you don't. But when it comes to raising capital, there's just no other way because to your point, it's such a complex, convoluted thing. There's so many landmines and it's such a convoluted web. I tend to be able to explain things pretty simply. One of my good friends, Tom Wheelwright's one of the Rich Dad advisors, likes to say I'm one of the few attorneys that actually speaks English. So I have a knack of taking these really complex and esoterics and making them somewhat easy to understand. But I think sometimes I do maybe a little bit of a disservice because I make it seem like, oh, it's a piece of cake. You just do X, Y, Z. But people forget that in the background, I've got a thousand things that are going on and I'm constantly trying to pick at them. It's like, oh, and then suddenly I bring something forward. It's like, hey, we got to think about this. So that's why if you're out there raising money where you're doing the returns and you're doing the work, you're going to need a security attorney. Now, one of the biggest mistakes probably some people is not realizing that what they're doing is selling security. So a classic example is people do joint ventures all the time. And they're like, oh, I'm not doing a security. I'm, I'm doing this as a joint venture. And I even get this a lot where it's like, oh, I'm not raising that much money. Or, oh, it's just my friends and family. I'm going to do this as a joint venture instead of a securities or a syndication. And they don't understand that you don't get to make that call. It's either a syndication or it's a joint venture. You don't get to say, oh, I'm going to go this way or that way. If you're doing the work and generating a return, it's a syndication. A joint venture, if done properly, which they rarely are, it means there's a few people, three, four people, and everyone's contributing to the return of the project. There's not one person running the show, but there's four or five of us. I'm doing this. You're doing that. We're all rolling up our sleeves. There's certainly no carried interest or split. Everybody's putting in money. It's almost like you're starting a business at that point, right? That's what a joint venture really is. But unfortunately, these days, you get joint ventures in air quotes, when in reality, they're just securities offerings that people either don't want to deal with securities because let's be honest, it comes with a compliance cost. So if you're not raising a lot of money, if you're raising a hundred grand or 200 grand or 300 grand, 
it really becomes cost prohibitive to do it right. So here are your options really. A, don't do it, which nobody wants to hear that, or do it bigger. So if you're buying one single family home, well, why don't you go buy four? So you need to raise more money or do it as a true joint venture. But that generally means you've got a structure in such a way that the person's like, wait, wait, I don't want to do that. I want to have control. I don't want to give up control. And I want to take 20% of the profits because it just doesn't usually work out. But picking up my buddy, Tom, again, you know, he, he's a tax guy. And so he likes to say, if you want to change your tax, you've got to change your facts. He's really well known for saying that. And I'm kind of taking that. I'm like, look, if you want to change it from a syndication to a joint venture, you've got to change your facts because the facts are that's going to dictate whether it's a joint venture or securities. But anyway, you're in the business of selling securities. You're raising money. You're doing the work. You need to comply with securities laws. And that's just not something you can do on your own. You need an SEC specialist. So. Let's just say hypothetically, I know a few people that have probably done joint ventures that should have been syndications and had all the compliance. So give me an example, and you don't have to give specifics, but I'm sure in all of your time and experience, you've seen situations where those did not go well and therefore then became an SEC issue. So can you talk a little bit about what could happen and why would that happen? So generally what happens is something doesn't go according to the plan. The SEC is not out there scouring your social media posts, looking for whatever. First of all, they're overstaffed. And it's not going to be the SEC, by the way. Everybody thinks it's the SEC. It's going to be your state regulator, most likely. But what's going to happen is something's not going to go according to plan. You're going to lose investor money, which is the typical one. Sometimes you have investors like, hey, you told me you're going to get me 20%. You only got me six, and so I'm not happy. But generally, it starts with somebody picking up the phone, making a complaint, and then the SEC opens up an audit. And they're going to send you a nice letter saying, I understand you're doing this deal. I need you to send me all these docs. And it's just a whole process. And during that investigation, that audit is where they will uncover violations. The example I like to give is, is because it's a personal one that's actually happened to me. My car, for example, has tinted windows here in California, which is a no-no. And it has no front license plate. I don't get pulled over for tinted windows. I certainly don't get pulled over for not having a front license plate. But if I do get pulled over speeding, they're going to tack on the tinted windows. And if I get a parking ticket, they're going to throw on the thing. So that's where all these other peripheral things will happen. There's a chance that they open up an investigation and you're cleared. You didn't do whatever it is that they thought. You didn't screw it up. You did everything right. But you violated securities laws doing something else. You were posting on social media when you wasn't supposed to. You were paying somebody to come in as a general partner, just to help you raise money. You were doing these violations, even though you didn't lose people's money because of that, but because you violated these other rules, you had a failure to disclose, you violated the terms of, of the law that we're relying on, and they'll nail you on that. Al Capone, he got nailed on tax evasion. He didn't get nailed on murdering 7,000 people. He just got nailed on tax return. Yeah. So that's why you've got to be a little bit concerned, and that's where things will pop up, is when there's a disgruntled investor, which is why I always tell my clients, it's not worth it, man. If you've got somebody disgruntled and you can just work something out, get them out of the deal, because the last thing you want is them to be so pissed that they're going to pick up the phone, call someone, and then you've got your mess. Yeah. So it kind of opens the can of worms on you as an operator or as a partnership. So give me an example of some penalties. Let's say somebody was running a partnership that should have been in a syndication or have SEC filings. What could they be looking at? That's a great question. I wrote a book actually called The Five Things Every Syndicator Must Know to Stay Out of Jail. Okay. And I did that a little bit tongue-in-cheek. You're probably not going to go to jail, although I wanted to emphasize that there are serious consequences. So jail is usually reserved for intentional wrongdoing. You're defrauding people. You're intentionally ripping them off or taking money and commingling and going on vacation with your investor money. That's where you get into the jail criminal side. But the most common penalty for you is what we call rescission. 
meaning you've got to return investor money plus interest, plus you're probably going to be barred from raising money for whatever you can negotiate with the SEC or the regulator. So the way I present it is, look, if you don't follow these rules, essentially you're guaranteeing your investors' money. Because even if you didn't do anything wrong, even if the market collapsed, you were back down there in 2008, 2009, markets froze, we had a huge, great financial crisis, nobody could have seen this coming, it's not my fault, yet because you failed to do something, that's where they're going to get you from. So with what you're saying here, they open up a case, something typically bad is going to happen that's going to start this complaint, let's say, and then they're going to investigate you. And then once they have the file open on you, I'm assuming that they could look at every other deal you're involved in, every other partnership. And again, it kind of really puts a target on your back, so to speak. And I guess my question is, with this being mostly civil, if I understand the civil penalties. So that often leads to fines and financial penalties. Is that all correct? Okay. So give me an example where we contrast your upfront costs. And I know obviously there's a massive range there, but give me a common range of upfront costs you're going to have on, let's say you're buying a $10 million deal. Okay. To give you something to work with, give me a, a range of costs. And then if you didn't do that correctly, some of the penalties you could look at. Give me those two spectrums. I'm so glad you asked that question because I give the example on the transactional side, which is another thing. So the cost for you to do a a standard deal, like a $10 million deal, you're probably raising 3 million, three and a half million. That's going to run you about 15 grand. That's usually what I'd say. Legal and compliance, a little line item in your underwriting, one, five, 15,000. Okay. And let's say in that example, you raise $3 million. So your risk is if you lose investor money, and you lose $3 million and you didn't comply with federal securities laws, you've got to give $3 million back plus interest at the legal rate, which is about 10%, which most likely means you don't have it, right? I mean, because if the deal went south, but maybe you do have it and now your financial situation is tough or you don't and you end up filing for bankruptcy. So you're saving 15,000, which by the way is going to be paid by the project. It doesn't even get paid by you. It's paid by the project itself. And your risk is you lose 3 million plus interest. Same thing with a real estate attorney. We don't do transactional work right now, but people don't want to pay for that. And they're like, well, same thing. I'll save $10,000 here. I'm risking 3 million, 4 million, 5 million. The risk reward ratio just makes no sense to me, but people are doing that. And again, if you're working with a really reputable syndicator, they're going to have reputable counsel. The law is like the doctors, right? You can have your general practitioner that you go see when you have the flu, and then they're going to send you to a specialist. Maybe you've got some stomach issues, you've got a gastroenterologist or whatever. And even within that, you've got a specialist on whatever disease you have. It's the same with us, right? So you you don't want to be using a general business attorney who creates contracts and does joint ventures and stuff to have them do securities any more than you want me Honestly, I am not a real, people think I'm a real estate attorney because I'm in the real estate. You do not want me looking at your purchase and sale agreement and negotiating with the lender. And that's not what I do. I'm in the compliance business. I'm making sure that when you raise the money, that we're doing so in full compliance with federal state securities laws, making sure we're providing your investors all the requisite disclosures and all the information they need, making sure we're not violating all these referral things that are going on these days. This, This is going crazy. So that's our job, but you need a specialist. And again, the risk reward just doesn't make any sense to me in terms of trying to save a few bucks. If your deal can't absorb 15, and, and look, and sometimes it doesn't, and that's why the joint venture thing comes up. If you're trying to raise $150,000 and you got to pay 15 grand because it's a flat fee, it doesn't matter. The numbers for us, they don't matter. The work is the work. So the same 15 grand on 150,000, that's 10%. It'll kill your deal. But now if you're raising 1.5, that's only 1%. It should work. 
Where it gets crazy or a little bit fuzzy is when you're in that 700 grand, 800 grand, 900 grand. You just got to throw that number in your spreadsheet on your underwriting and see what pops up. Okay, well then you answered my next question. I was going to ask, based on the size and complexity of the deal, does that number sway in large way up or down? It sounds like it doesn't. It's pretty consistent with the work being consistent just to do the paperwork and the filings and all that. Let's look at with all of these clients you have, and I'm sure you see a ton of deals that need your assistance on the legal side. What are the three most common mistakes or trouble that you see people get themselves into? Great question. I think the first one we kind of touched on already, I always talk about people not realizing they're selling securities or the more seasoned syndicators try and get creative to avoid securities laws. Now, neither of those work. So the SEC doesn't give a rat's you know what of how you structure it. It's like, oh, we'll do a side letter or a profit sharing agreement, or maybe we'll do a handshake or a wink wink. That doesn't matter. The structure itself will never matter. They're going to look straight through the structure and they're just going to ask the question I asked before. Are there basically past investors? Are you doing all the work? Are you generating the return? If that's the case, it's a security, whether it's an LLC, a corporation, a note, that's another big one, promissory note, doesn't matter, tenants in common, profit sharing agreement, handshake, doesn't matter, right? So that's number one. The big one right now, and it keeps changing by the minute, but I think the next biggest issue we have right now is people getting compensated to raise capital for the sponsors. It's getting harder and harder to raise money these days. This has been going on for many, many years now, but there's this belief or I don't know what the deal is, but it happens as much as not only I am, but my colleagues, when I say colleagues, my friendly competitors, we're all pretty close. It's a tight knit community. We've been pounding the table about this, but people are just going out there and saying, Hey Joe, I can bring in a million dollars into your deal. Just give me 5% of the GP or give me 10% of the GP or give me whatever, give me something. And for some reason, people forget that you cannot get paid to raise capital unless the default is you're a broker. You need a broker deal license. It's like you can't practice law without a law license. You can't practice medicine without a medical license. You can't raise capital without either being a broker or finding an exemption to being that broker. And the exemption that all of us syndicators use, the generic one that, again, most people don't realize that they have the exemption, but this is how they get around it is what's called the issuer exemption, which is a terrible name because it doesn't really apply to the issuer, but it's called an issuer exemption because if you are not getting paid as a sponsor based on how much money you're raising, which you're not, because if it's just you and me doing a deal, Joe, we're doing all kinds of crap. We're not just raising money, right? We're doing underwriting, we're doing due diligence, we're talking to lawyers, we're doing asset management, we're doing this, we're doing that, investor relations, we're doing all that stuff. Number one, our primary role needs to be doing substantial duties. That's sort of the second thing. And the third one is that we have to do real work. We have to do substantial duties. So again, if it's just me and you, we're doing all the work. What tends to happen is somebody comes in from the outside, they get paid to raise the money and they're not doing any work. First, they're getting transaction-based compensation. How much money do I bring in dictates how much GP I get or how much compensation I get, which is the hallmark of a broker dealer. And number two, they're not doing any work. Forget substantial work, they're doing none of it. And then their primary role is not doing anything. Their primary role is going to raise money. So they don't fit into the exemption, which means they're an unlicensed broker. So that's probably the second most common mistake. I'm still seeing way too many people on social media. That's another big mistake in the most common exemption that we utilize. So in the securities world, you either have to register your security, find an exemption, or it's illegal. We never register, we never do anything illegal. So we're always looking for the exemption. The most common is what's referred to as a 506B as in boy. It's probably familiar with that. And that one does not allow you to advertise, period and full stop. There's no going on a podcast. Like if I had a deal right now, Joe, I can't come on your podcast and say, hey, I got a deal, why don't you call me? I'm doing a webinar tomorrow. Can't go on social media, can't go on podcasts, can't put it on my website. 
And yet people do that. They do it and they violate it, or they do it in a subtle way where they don't realize they're violating securities laws. Because again, securities laws are nebulous. They're gray. They're not clear. One of the things the SEC looks at is their definition of an offer, which is what they control. They control offers and sales, is if you are conditioning the market, whatever the hell that means. But if you are posting stuff on social or talking about things on a podcast that is quote unquote conditioning the market, getting people pumped about your next deal, bragging about your past returns, even though you're not speaking about a specific deal, you're just talking in general to get the market excited for whenever you're going to launch your deal, that can be considered an offer. And in fact, I could easily argue pretty much every post out there, you can argue it's conditioning, not that you'd win that case. So my recommendation on social media in general is if you have an active deal, we always recommend people stay off social. Yeah, you can post about your cats and your kids and do whatever, but don't get cute and try and post things about real estate. One of the easiest ones to talk about is the, what I call the due diligence post. You're going to do your due diligence in the property. You're in the middle of a raise and you're there in front of the building and you're like, oh, we're here in so-and-so Alabama and we're about to do a due diligence on it. And inevitably you're in that speech. It's like, oh, you know, our investors are going to crush it on this one or whatever. Or if you're interested in something, you post, mm -hmm. done. So to do that, yeah. you would want to be filed under, what's the other one? There's another exemption. So 506B is the one that does not allow you to do any advertising or generally soliciting. There is an exemption. That's why we always need to pick and figure out what you're trying to do that does allow you to do all that stuff, advertise and do exactly what you say, which is called the 506C as in Charlie. But that one has some limitations, which primarily means you can only accept accredited investors only, million dollar net worth, 200 grand a year. And you must verify that they are accredited. So you can't just take their word for it. You've got to look at their tax returns. You've got to get a CPA to send you a verification letter. So yes, that is an option, but 95% of exemptions are under 506B because people just want to have non-accredited investors in their deal, especially when they're starting out. I saw a stat Joe the other day that said that 70% of syndicators have less than three years of experience. Wow. A lot of newbies out there. So the vast majority of syndicators still rely on, even the stats that I see from the SEC, from the form D filings within between B and C, it's still 93% 506B, 7% 506C. And part of that is because a lot of those numbers are big institutional players like Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan, and they all use broker dealers. So that's all pre-existing relationships. But even in my world, probably 60 to 70% still use 506B, which would not allow them to do any stuff on social. Yeah. So explain that in detail where when you're on a 506B, what is an existing relationship? Define that and give me some examples of who would qualify for that. Here's the good news about this. So this is the only, not the only, but probably very few instances where the SEC has given us some actual clear guidance. Usually it's like, well, what does conditioning the market mean? What does offer mean? What does this mean? Like, we don't know, right? This one's super clear. So generally speaking, in order to show that you did not advertise or generally solicit, you generally have to have what's called a pre-existing substantive relationship. Meaning you've got to first establish a substantive relationship and you've got to establish that prior to your deal, pre-existing substantive relationship. And the SEC outlined in an action letter called Citizen VC, eight steps where if you go to a conference and meet a, a stranger and you, you start up a conversation, you exchange business cards, or you find somebody on social and you start complete stranger to somebody you have a substantive relationship, there's about eight steps or eight things you can do. The two most common ones, and I'll talk about them, we can talk about all of them, but the main one is number one, you want to have a conversation with them, an actual one-on-one, -on -one, it doesn't have to be in person, but like, you know, Zoom, cup of coffee, lunch, where you are asking the investor, 
all these questions like, are they sophisticated? What's their level of experience? You're trying to find out about them, figure out if this investment that you're doing or that you do is suitable for them. Are they 90 years old and live on a pension and you're going to go give them a development deal? Like you're trying to find that out. And then they're supposed to be asking you questions to figure out, hey, what kind of deals do you do? What's your investment thesis? Are you aggressive? Are you conservative? And what the SEC really wants to see is this fostering relationship between the two of us. But one of them is a meeting. The other one is a questionnaire. In that report I was talking about at the end, uh, 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 the, the exhibit has a, a, a template questionnaire. But it's not just like, hey, how much do you make? Are you accredited? What's your favorite color? It's really detailed, like almost when you're getting a margin account in the stocks and you want to trade options or whatever. What's your level of experience? Are you looking for growth, income, conservative? How many syndications have you done before? What's your liquid net worth? Because if you're non-accredited, I don't want to take all your money. Like, really detailed questionnaire. So those two things, usually you're talking about that on your call. And then you want to encourage them to go look at your website. You want to have an offline conversation, so emails going back and forth. One of them is actually a credit report, which I don't know anybody who does it, but one of those eight steps was to pull a credit report because then you can confirm the liabilities. Are they telling me the truth and all that kind of stuff? But the key to all this at the end of the day is you've got to document that. Because if something were to happen five years from now, which is what we're talking about, three to five years from now, and something goes wrong, what we talked about earlier, an investor complains, there's an audit, and they're like, hey, this guy Joe's in your deal. He says he doesn't know you from Adam. How did you find him? You should be able to go to your electronic file and be like, oh, I met Joe at this conference. We had a phone call here. I sent him this email here. And you just have all this information. And then you say, hey, on this date, after all these calls and all these interactions, I made the decision that I felt that I had a, a substantive relationship with Joe. And that's all documented in my file because you're not going to remember five years from now any of this stuff. So document it, put it in a file, all those emails, all nicely packaged. And then when you establish a substantive relationship with just a date, Hey, it's going to be July 1st. I decided I have a substantive relationship. Well, now you can offer them future deals because again, you have to have a pre-existing substantive relationship. So anything you have today, they're not eligible for, but your next deal, now they're going to be eligible. Now you can add them to your email list. You want to segment your list. You have everybody on one thing, and then you got to have a, a list that's only for people you have existing relationships with. So when you have a deal, you're only sending the deal to a subset of those investors. And now you can move them. Once you establish that relationship, you can move them from this list. Now, hey, now they can go into my 506B list, which is where I can literally send an email and say, hey, I've got a new deal. Here's the business plan. If you're interested, blah, 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 blah. Here's why we like the deal. There's very few instances where I've seen the SEC very delineated. as like, a, here are the steps you need to take. Because we're very lucky on that subject. But that's only on how to establish a pre-existing substantive relationship. We'll get back to the show. But first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR, with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital's never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors, targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, Visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital.thebamcompanies.com. Most operators have some sort of social media or website or a newsletter. Some way they're reaching out to the people that they make content for or who invest in their deals. And let's say you had a one-on-one -on -one conversation 
and they're following you on social media. They like what you're saying. They like the types of deals that you're doing if they see that kind of stuff. And they sign up for your newsletter, but you only had one face-to-face conversation and then they follow you for a year. Would you consider that a relationship or is it too one-sided, meaning they're kind of just absorbing and there's no back and forth? Yeah, obviously it's facts and circumstances. It depends on who's looking at it. But the SEC has been very clear that there's no magic timeline. Okay. So it's not 30 days or 10 years or four years. And there's no three-touch rule. Like people say, oh, as long as I touch him, three, no, no, no. It's really what they're looking for is the quality of those interactions. And so I kind of give that example in the newsletter. Like you could be communicating for a year, but all you're doing is dripping them with an email campaign. And even if they read them all, that's probably not going to cut it. But on the other hand, you could go on a three-day field trip to some thing and you're spending 72 hours from breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then going out for drinks later on, you get to know them really well for those three days. That might be enough because you spent a quality time. So you can theoretically quote unquote qualify somebody or establish a substantive relationship relatively fast. It just depends on how deep that conversation, how much did you spend? There's a lot of groups that I'm a part of that actually go on these field trips. They'll go do a due diligence trip in, in Tampa, Florida to go check out that market or they'll go here and you literally spend two or three days with somebody in this location. And so you that could be a complete stranger from day one. And by the time the trip's over, you're like best buds. And that might be enough to establish, especially if you've talked about what are your goals. And, you know, obviously you're not going to have a questionnaire at that point, but like you, you, you're fostering that relationship. And as long as you document that so that when the SEC comes knocking on your door, it's like, nope, Joe, we spent three days, man. And we were like best friends for those three days. And we just talked nonstop about real estate and their goals and this, that, the other. And I felt pretty good that uh, I established a substantive relationship. And here are, my, here are my notes and here's what I got out of it. In the best practice, I would say a lot of my clients will record these conversations, especially now with this otters and all these like transcription services that you can bring on. What I would do is when I'm doing those Zoom calls, I often encourage people to do the transcription and then just file it away. You don't have to do anything with it. If something ever were to happen, then you can take that transcription and go get a, a summary of the call or something. And so you've got something in your file. But the easiest way, instead of having to take detailed notes or copious notes, if you're doing a Zoom call, or even a phone call, just have a transcription service and you have that in your file so that if you ever need to look at it, you've got it available and you can transcribe it. That's great advice. I would have never thought to do that. So I know in the beginning, we talked a little bit about this new corporate transparency law. Can you enlighten us on that? Yeah, I assume everyone listening to this call probably has at some point in their lives created or owned an LLC or a corporation or an LP or some kind of an entity, right? And so if you had an entity in the past, even if you bought a property 20 years ago and you put in an LLC and you still own it, this is a new law, the Corporate Transparency Act that takes effect January 1st of 2024 that's going to affect you. And essentially what the government is trying to do, and I think will be successful with this new law, and if you have never heard of it, please Google it. We don't have time to go into every single detail, but what they're trying to do is basically uncover the true owners of all of these entities because they're trying to fight money laundering and tax evasion and nefarious activities. So they're going out of their way to make sure that if you've got any connection, control of an entity or ownership, you're going to have to provide them with your personal information. And when I say personal, I mean your name your home address, not a a PO box or a business address, your home address, your date of birth, driver's license number, and a copy of a driver's license. That's on the individual side. But basically starting in 2024, you have 90 days to provide all this information to the government, 90 days from the time you file your LLC or your entity. If you've got one from the past, this year, last year, 20 years ago, you have a year. So you have until the end of next year to get it all done. Some clients of mine, they've got over 100 entities. We've got to go do that for 100 entities. So it's going to be pretty time consuming. So if you've got one LLC, maybe you can wait till the end of the year. But if you've got a bunch of them, like many of our clients, 20, 30 or whatever, start doing that quickly. But 
essentially it's any LLC or entity that's been filed. They have to file this information for the entity. And then the beneficial owners of that entity have to file. So that's where the individuals come in. If you own 25% of the company or more, you've got to file. And if you have what's called significant control over the company, you've got to file. So if you're the manager, if you're the president, even if you're none of those, but you have a controlling voter shares control, but you're going to be that. So it's a pretty big deal. And the penalties are ridiculous. They're, they're almost not as bad as when you violate international. Like if you don't report a foreign bank account or a foreign entity, that's $10,000 a day per violation per day. This is $500, but it's still $500 per day per entity and potentially criminally $10,000, two years in prison. If you just miss it from a day or two, I'm, I'm sure you're not going to go to jail, but if, if it drags on for a while. And if you're intentional, if you're really trying to avoid this, like I'm not going to give you my home address, then the penalties will go up to $250,000 and five years in prison. So they're taking this really seriously and the rules are meant to basically catch all. So if you're a legitimate owner, again, 25% or more, or have control over an entity, they want to know who you are because they want to make sure they're keeping tabs on you and you're not doing all kind of nefarious stuff. But it starts January 1st, 2024. And you can just Google it or I got a YouTube video on there called the Corporate Transparency Act under my YouTube channel, which is Mauricio Raul. Go check that out or just Google it, but just please be aware of it because ignorance of the laws, you know, is not an excuse. So a lot of people are like, oh, I've never heard of this before. It's like, well, it doesn't matter. You've got a year to comply for priors and you've got only 90 days. It just got extended. It was 30 days originally. And then they extended it to 90 days from the date of the filing starting next year to get you all that compliance documents uploaded it's under FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network is the governmental agency that's running this. Awesome. Well, thank you for that information. Let's do a quick best ever lightning round. You ready? Yep, let's do it. Best ever book recommendation. I'm going to recommend the book that I just finished reading. It's one of my now top three. It's How to Buy Back Your Time by Dan Martell. Freaking off the chart. It's a time management for sure, but it's a leadership book. I go buy that book right now. <laughs> it's been transformational. Best ever way you like to give back. I like to give back primarily through my time. So whenever people need something, like, I don't have time for that. I want to, I want to give back on the time. And then the other thing I do from a monetary thing is I like to over tip people. If they're going to give me a service, that's kind of like my charity. Like I don't really deserve a 50% tip or whatever, but I'm going to give it to them because that's kind of a nice little financial thing or, or the, the maid from the hotel. I like to give them a nice little chunk. Uh, so it's kind of like a little bit of charity, but we did a fun thing the other day. We did a, we, we got all this money for for the kids. We went in and got all our coins or whatever. And we just ended up doing the, the toys for tots the other day. So we do the charitable stuff, but I, I like to get back on my time as well. Very cool. And give me a mistake in a deal you invested in and the lesson learned from it. I got caught up in a Ponzi scheme. So that's probably my number one lesson. Not doing my proper due diligence on the deal and it's on me, right? Extreme ownership. So not doing my due diligence, not checking everything, just I trusted and did not verify. So trust and verify. And that was a painful experience. So I'll definitely not be doing that again. And by the way, I think we talked about this on Drunk Real Estate or maybe it was when we were talking offline. Uh, there's a lot of these Ponzi schemes that have come up over the last year or something. I mean, I've heard at least four or five of these stories now of different Ponzi scheme, whether they're in the multifamily or in, the, in other asset classes. So just be super careful out there. There are people out there that are there to flat out defraud you and uh, go Bernie Madoff on you. And if that could happen to a real estate and SEC regulation attorney, I think it can happen to anybody. So is that resolved or what was the resolution of that, that, that no, deal? No, that's still going. That's open, just going. Open case. That's still going, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Mauricio, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. I know I learned a lot and hopefully our audience did as well. What is the best way for our audience to learn more and connect with you? I'm really active on LinkedIn. So I'd encourage you to go to LinkedIn and YouTube. 
And dude, I just discovered Instagram, as I mentioned before. So Mauricio Raul is my Instagram handle. I'm going to be really focusing there as well. So uh, any of those three places, a good place to find me. Just DM me. Happy to connect. Awesome. And yeah, we'll make sure to link to those in the show notes. We'll make sure to tag you when this episode comes out, get you a little more free Instagram content there. But again, Mauricio, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Best ever listeners. If you got any value from the show, please leave us a five-star review on the app of your choice. Make sure you're following us on social media as well. And I hope you all have the best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.